Al Mohler this week referred to a case in Indiana, and then some other people told me there are other cases around the country after this, but Al Mohler kind of rose to the public level an issue that's happening in West Lafayette, Indiana. And this is a bit of a quote from what he said in his briefing this week. The issue at stake is a proposed ordinance identified as 3121, and that proposed ordinance uh, that has already been delayed twice but is coming up again would prohibit unlicensed persons from practicing what is described here as conversion therapy with those who are under the age of 18. And it comes with a big bite, a proposed penalty of $1,000 per day for those who violate the ordinance. As West describes, it defines conversion therapy as any practices or treatments that seek to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity, including efforts to change gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions of feeling or feelings towards individuals of the same gender. So, what we are clearly looking at here is what we have seen in other jurisdictions, including most recently in Canada, also legislation that is uh, pending before Parliament in Britain as well. We're looking at a direct collision between the autonomy of the local church, the freedom of gospel ministry, religious freedom in the most specific sense, and the new totalitarian demands of sexual revolutionaries. Um, The pending legislation in the United Kingdom and Scotland and what we have seen coming out of Canada and even some American jurisdictions would actually criminalize speech on the basis of biblical truth between Christian parents and their own children. It's eventually going to go that that distance. If you don't think it is... um, uh, I'm not a prophet, but go back five years when I preached about the Oberfell decision, or at least I reacted. I got a lot of people told me that I was over the top on that. The only thing I was was not, I wasn't quick enough to realize how fast that would happen. So on that point, you're, the similar thing is here. Now notice this, um, take it out of the realm of someone coming in and talking about same-sex attraction. If someone comes into me, if a man comes into me and says, I have a problem with porn, I'm going to do everything I can do to sway them away, or a problem with uh, any kind of adult, adultery. That's not illegal. I, I, can, I, I guess it's okay for me to counsel them away. I'm oriented towards porn. I'm oriented because, you know, the whole idea of being oriented means we all, have or, we all have sinful desires, which we've been discovering as we go. And so we don't describe ourselves on the basis of the sinful desire. We call it what it is, a sinful desire. Um, but some sinful desires you can come in and say that are of a sexual variety, and they're not under this kind of ordinance. It's only if you would, if someone who's struggling, it's, they're 17, they're struggling, like who's not struggling when they're or when you're 27, let alone 17, it's just the nature of the human existence, but even more so as you're growing up um, and you're not, even when they ask for it, you're not able to help them away from it. It shows you how much of a, an agenda there is about this issue because there, there's not similar penalty for helping someone away from other sexual disorders they may have. It's just this specific one of same-sex attraction or gender identity. Um, so that's the world around us and what we're looking at. So I wanted to alert you to how, how relevant what we're talking about is. Um, and how long will it be before, you know, we have all our sermons on YouTube, I mean, or, or just pe- anyone could come in at any time, though, and just record me saying something about biblical marriage, and that could be construed at some point as, uh, you know, speech against this kind of thing. We, we deal with it on the school level all the time because it's way more sensitive there, and there's more, uh, more people coming in and uh, talking about ideas, and they don't come to light till you hear about it later. You know, the adults don't hear about it till after students are talking about it. So you get this kind of a thing. Um, all across culture right now. So I wanted to alert you to that. The second thing is I wanted to answer a question and start that I have received a few times along the course of this. And I've been telling people who have asked me this question, we're getting there in the logical progression of the classes. But it comes up enough that I just want to address it right quick, and then we'll come back to it when we talk about identity, which is our next class. 
Next week, we have a congregational meeting. That's during this hour. Hope you all come to that. We're voting on two deacon candidates. Um, but then the following week, when we come back, we'll pick it up with identity. The classes have been building a logical structure on purpose to help you construct an idea. So sometimes I can't get to the real practical questions you want answered at the moment. But the one I get consistently from people over the years and, and during the course of this class, I'll just say something about initially. How can a person who is not attracted to the opposite sex, they don't feel like they're attracted to the opposite sex, that's their experience, um, how can they hope to pursue a biblical marriage? Because I'll hear that from uh, a good number of people ask that question. So let me say it again, because it's important what the question is, and we have to orient ourselves biblically and think in terms of, of uh, how Scripture addresses this so we can know how to pursue an answer. How can a person who is not attracted to the opposite sex hope to pursue a biblical marriage? Attraction to the opposite sex, biblical marriage. Okay, I'm going to say this, it's immediately going to sound like extreme, but then let me unpack it. Sexual attraction is not the basis for marriage. That's not the basis. How you feel sexually is not re relevant to what biblical marriage is. And sexual attraction isn't even, I will say, an important part of biblical marriage. It's a part. It's a gift. There's things that are great about it. Don't get me wrong. But we're thinking through our feelings first. We don't do that in so many other areas. But in this area, we think, if I just don't feel this sexual attraction, well, that's not, the starting point isn't how I feel sexually about something. Your sexual feelings are not definitive of who you are as a person. They're improper um, characterizations of personhood what we feel sexually. That, that, that we, we've elevated because we live in a sexualized society, because we live in a, uh, in a place that, in a time, in a place that elevates our feelings in our psychological self over our biological or our ethical self or the way that God describes who we are. And we have to have the description because we already have discovered that our desires are so flawed and messed up that we can't trust them. So to then take those flaws, desires, and, and then use that as a mechanism how I will get married to somebody is problematic from the get-go. Now, I understand if you're not a Christian, this doesn't matter what I'm saying to you, but if you're a Christian and you really want to pursue biblical marriage, if you say, but I'm not attracted to the opposite sex, um, that's not the basis for how you might pursue a biblical marriage. And let me give you some examples of how this might be uh, realized. In marriage, um, the purposes for marriage that God gives is partly it's the image of God that he has uh, He has imprinted upon humanity, and so you have man and woman in, in the marriage relationship. It doesn't mean you're not in the image of God if you're not married. It just means that this is one of the expressions he gives because it means from that marriage will then multiply, so you'll have children from that marriage. You know, and normally, obviously, um, sin has come into effect us physically, and sometimes we can't have children. There's some reason, but the point is on the norm, on the basic creational level, the image of God is realized man and woman in uh, becoming one flesh what that means. Again, we're not talking about sexual attraction at any point yet at this point. Um, God gives us that so that we can, um, so that it can deepen or grow our relationship, but that's not the basis for why, how I would pursue a marriage. I pursue on the basis of what marriage does the way God's designed it, and that's, it mirrors the image of God. It's also for companionship. Um, that's not, companionship isn't, isn't wrapped up in sex. Um, it's, it's way more uh, pervasive and important than that our companionship that we have with someone who we do have a friendship with the, the person that we, that we marry. And it's, a, it's in a way that is different because God's ordained it as such. Um, it also uh, is good for the family unit and for what it does for raising children. Again, these uh, sexual um, attraction to one's spouse is not the thing that determines the most 
fruitful benefits of marriage. Um, we've elevated it to be number one, and that's a problem on all sorts of levels. Um, but it does keep us uh, sexually pure in that we're devoted to one person. Now, there's no marriage couple that doesn't have a challenge in the area of sexual relations. Like, there's, nothing's always smooth because we're sinners that come into it. So recognize, I mean, even if you think, well, I don't have attraction uh, for the opposite sex, if you did, you would still have some challenge in this area because we're sinners. So you're not so much different or, or dealing with something much worse than other people. We all have a lot of things. We've just elevated this thing and almost made it like it's a special thing. It made people think, like, well, if I don't have this feeling, then I must be gay. So I should go. Feelings are not where you want to start to pursue even happiness. And again, I'm talking to Christians who want to pursue what God says. I understand that if you're an unbeliever, nothing I'm going to say is, is just going to be completely uh, abusive and oppressive and all those things. But the benefits of marriage are manifold, and we can pursue them regardless of our sexual attraction. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't address that, because that, to be fully healthy in our marriage, we want to have a healthy sexual relationship. So it's not to say that there isn't something to work through there. But there are many things to work through. And when we commit to pursuing that marriage, God can do many things to change our desires along the way. Oh, no, you can't. We'll get to the whole point of identity, and we've talked a little bit about desires. But sanctification process does work this way. And it doesn't mean you'll have full victory in the course of your life, but you'll have some victory, because that's what the sanctification of God does. And marriage is one of the main ways he uses to sanctify us. Um, I can give you too many possible ways in which this is the case. I could just promise you, and this is, I know you'll laugh because it is kind of funny, but it ain't funny. The level of undisciplined slob I would be if I were not married. I have a wife who sanctifies me. Uh, and I was the level of undisciplined slob even more than you know me to be now. And these 28 years, uh, 28, yes, 28 years later, I'm not the same slob I once was. Now, I still may be, but, and I'll always struggle, but there's just levels of discipline. Um, I was 240 pounds uh, some, whenever the uh, first or second year I was here. Now, I ain't no skinny person now, but I'm 201. That's not just because Tony got on keto. That's because I feel responsible to the family I have, and I feel like that's in it, together there's a certain sanctification that comes from family, that comes from responsibility. It's not about sexual attraction. It's about, and it, there's like 10 things that are more important than that. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but I'm saying we have let the world tell us what defines how we look at something. And marriage is not first based on sexual attraction. Now, the problem is we abuse sexual uh, behavior in our life. If you're a man who's on porn, you can't look at a woman healthy. You're in, a, you're in deep sin, and it's going to cause you marital problems. And you help make the problem worse because you make women feel like they got to look a certain way just by the way you look at them after you watch porn all the time. So you compound the problem that the woman has who doesn't like men because that's the only way they look at them. I'd rather like a girl is what a girl might say because they don't treat me like that. So it's very complex, but I want us to get back to realize that biblical marriage is not about sexual attraction on the first level. It's way more powerful than that and more important. Um, I would say, I use the example, I can use multiple examples of areas of sanctification that I'm convinced are because I'm married, that give, that give me opportunity to grow in grace. And I like to think that I would provide that too for my wife, right? That's what we... So look at marriage as a sanctifying agent that's holistic. And yes, the, the, the gift of sexuality is part of who we are. And, um, but you know and I know, like, in your life, that's not even something you can depend on for the whole of your life. As you get older, things just, 
They don't operate the same way they used to operate full across the board. Our health, everything about us is diminishing. So you can't have it based on that. In any, that could be taken away in some other fashion, in any, any which way. That cannot be the basis for marriage. We're looking for a companion who we together um, can exercise the things God's called us to exercise, be fruitful, multiply, um, to have a positive impact in the world, to emulate the Christ in the church. Um, there's, there's, there's safety that comes with it. There's definitely chastity or sexual purity that happens when we're in a marital relationship. So that's part of it. But I just want to emphasize that when we start out by saying, I'm just not attracted to the opposite, what do you mean by that? Because that's not the point in marriage first. Marriage is much bigger and better than that. All right, we'll come back to this, but I want to at least set that off uh, first because I don't think the first thing you say to someone when they say, I don't feel sexually attracted to someone else is, well, God can change that. You should just, and you go right after how to find out to get them to be attracted to the opposite sex. That's not the approach. That's not, that's not the, it's rather step back. Wait, what has God called us to? If you're a Christian, if you're claiming, if you're professing Christianity, what has God called you to in marriage? Um, and you're, you're looking for what God would want you to do, and that changes your orientation, which isn't that true of everything. Should we look, what does God want me to do with this area of my life? Not how do I feel about this area of my life. And it's not to be, um, to lord over someone, but that's where they're going to find joy and happiness is in pursuing God's will for their life. Um, so that's why I emphasize we often react. Uh, someone says, I don't, you know, I've never been attracted to have sex, and I want to cure that. That's not, you can't cure that. That's, the Lord has to do work on our sinful desires that are disordered to help change them into what would, satis- would, would um, please him. But that, that's an ongoing, complex struggle. Okay, I've said enough about that. We could talk quite a bit about it, but I think that, um, I think that that's a good start. And we'll come back to it when we talk about identity. And then later, the last class, um, we'll, we'll cover it some more. Now, just as an intro or a reminder of where we've been, the logical flow is we started with what does the Bible say about marriage? The model for human relationships um, comes from God's uh, ordaining marriage to be a certain way, one man with one woman um, for their life, uh, in, in, in not polygamy, but uh, one uh, monogamous relationship with the person that you are one flesh with. And this is the place for the expression of sexuality. Um, the image of God was a second lesson. The male-female apo- uh, component of the image of God, our purpose in being God's vice regents on the earth to extend his dominion over the earth um, by multiplying and going out and, and subduing the earth and harnessing the various energies of, of the earth that God has given for the flourishing of mankind and the glory of God. Then we covered original sin. Sin comes in and how everything changes. Um, even though the image of God is still there, we're at the base level corrupted so that our desires can't be trusted. They're, they are spring from a corrupt um, well so that you have to know that they're tainted. Not as tainted as they could possibly be, but they're all, they're all tainted. So whatever feeling you have, you should rightly ask, um, even if it's a righteous feeling, you know, what admixture of sin is in this feeling because my feelings can't be um, trusted because of the corruption uh, that's ongoing or thoroughgoing. Then we talked about specifically desires in... Um, how all of our desires are in some level disordered because of our sin nature. Again, we can't trust them. Uh, concupiscence is that phrase that the Roman Catholic uh, theologians tried to use to characterize some of our desires as not necessarily sinful, where we were saying the scripture is very clear that our desires are sinful. Even if you don't actualize a sin when you think it in your heart, that's a sinful level. Um, whereas some of the Roman Catholic theologians would try to argue that unless you actually do it, the thought of it itself isn't specific sin. It could be of sin, but it's not specifically sin to you until you actually do it. 
And we discounted that biblically saying that can't be the case. In fact, the commandment about coveting is uh, one that comes from the heart. So the sin comes from the heart. And this also then leads into the issue of temptation. Temptation is sinful for us because we have sinful desires that lay hold of the outward temptation. Um, so for us, temptation is very thoroughgoing because it immediately uh, uh, attaches to our desire. Now, not all temptation is sinful, but most of it is for us because we have uh, temptations that well up from within, and we also have temptations that come from without, and the ones that come from without make connection with the, te- the sinful desires within. So we talked about why the issue of our desires being sinful manifests themselves so much in the area of temptation. Because some will say that temptation on its own is not sin. That's true, some isn't, but some is. And so we'll come back to that in today's lesson. Then we um, talked about sanctification, the necessity of God doing an ongoing work in us before glory, where we'll see victory. It may only be slight victory at times, but there's some victory. We can hope for change. We shouldn't ever reside and say, this is who I am. I can never be changed. And I'm not just talking sexual orientation. It could be any, any of the sins that can lay hold of us that we feel like we can. The addict doesn't, it can say that with certainty that God can change me from this addiction I have. Um, it'll be a struggle. It'll be brutal. It'll be a war, mortifying uh, the, the flesh, the sin is killing it. So it's a description of something that's very violent that has to happen in our lives with regard to sin. Um, but sanctification, God's uh, free grace that's shown to us in a process of rooting out sin in our lives. Then um, we come to today, which we'll talk a little bit about the person of Christ and what is called his impeccability. And I'll, see, I'll tell you why that's relevant to this discussion. The next class will be on our identity, our identity namely being in Christ, and really the, the problem with identifying ourselves by whatever sinful desire you might identify yourself to. Nowadays, it's only, you know, when people say I'm a gay Christian, uh, they're just picking one of the many sins that they deal with and elevating it, and it really almost puts it in a place that you're not allowed to, you know, question that, you know, because they're being so honest and everything, but we don't allow it in other, other, you know, other areas. I'm a completely homicidal Christian, constantly thinking of killing people. I mean, we would never tell a Christian that's a smart thing to do. We wouldn't say they weren't Christians because they're struggling with whatever it is, even as extreme as that may be, but you don't call yourself that. Uh, that, that, that it, that's a profession of a certain belief that could be problematic, for, well, is problematic for sure. So we'll talk about identity. We'll talk about language, the way we use terms and describe. We want to be as biblically minded as we can in our descriptions. We'll talk about friendship, the nature of friendship. What does that mean? Uh, two guys are friends, two girls are friends. What does that look like and, and how do we understand that in the biblical, uh, the biblical economy of things. And then the last uh, class is on repentance and hope. When we struggle with these things, how is it that we can turn from them and have hope and change and hope, obviously, in our forgiveness to know that we're forgiven by Christ, even though we struggle with so many things. So that's the intro into today's class. And today's statement I'll read now and then explain it to you. It's the most straightforward of all the statements, I believe, this doctrine of impeccability, so it doesn't take as much depth of teaching. Um, I think you'll follow what's being described. It says, we affirm the impeccability of Christ. The incarnate Son of God neither sinned in thought, word, deed, or desire, or had the possibility of sinning. Christ experienced temptation passively in the form of trials and the devil's entreaties, not actively in the form of disordered desires. Christ had only the suffering part of temptation, where we also have the sinning part. Christ had no inward disposition or inclination unto the least evil, being perfect in all graces and all their operations at all times. Nevertheless, Christ endured from without, 
from the outside coming upon him, real soul-wrenching temptations, which qualified him to be our sympathetic high priest. Christ assumed a human nature that was susceptible to suffering and death. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, the reason why the report includes this section about Jesus is because some of the opposition or the side B position that says that you could have uh, the disorder of same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, whatever, however you want to term the different things that fall in that category, you could have that um, and know that Christ was tempted like we are and, and in all ways. Um, so they'll use that to say, it shows you that if Christ could be tempted and he could have been tempted with these things, they'll extrapolate, then it can't be sin because Christ underwent that temptation. No, you shouldn't partake in the outward activity of it, but the temptation itself, um, that cannot be considered sinful because Christ was tempted. If Christ was tempted and he didn't sin, then we know. And it's an attempt to, to lessen the same discussion we had earlier about desires, but now it's going to temptation. So the, the framers of this report thought it was important to make clear what Jesus underwent because sometimes it's confusing to people to think that he... Uh, we're identical with Christ in our experiences. We're not, um, thankfully, because to be the second Adam, there was a preservation of holiness that had to be the case for him, which his divinity assured, whereas um, the first Adam didn't have that. And that's, uh, you know, and at the end of the day, that's why we might say Adam fell. So the second Adam comes in a way that he can't fall so that we can be placed in him um, and know that, that we're assured. It doesn't mean he doesn't relate with us because he was tempted. But the temptations Jesus experienced, they all came from without. And they were powerful temptations for sure. But he didn't have an inward sinful desire that would reach out to them. So in that sense, it wasn't possible for him to actually sin. Um, I'll talk about it a little more because it can be confusing. But I think you'll follow. The issue is the, when you have fully God and fully man, the humanity is impacted by the divinity in this respect that the flesh, the human flesh, is not sinful like it is for us. Um, let's walk through the statement a little, and I'll try to explain it more. It, it, basically, this is so we don't get the wrong idea of what Jesus experienced in his temptations. Um, back at the, st- uh, you, you have your statement in front of you, but just as a reminder, what we taught, what we learned about temptation from the statement earlier, we affirm that Scripture speaks of temptation in different ways. There are some temptations God gives us in the form of morally neutral trials and other temptations God never gives us because they arise from within as morally illicit desires. So something to come in because I have an illicit desire of covetousness or whatever it may be, and then from that it lays hold of external things and I sin. There are other things that happen. A trial can happen to you. A health crisis can happen. It's morally neutral uh, as it relates to how you relate with it. I know you could say that a you know, that illness and things like that occur are a result of sin in general. That's true. But I'm saying things can happen, um, a financial hardship or something you didn't do, you didn't cause. It's external. It's amoral. It may or may not become sin depending on how we interact with it. So there's that sense in which there are different kinds of temptations. But when we think of Jesus, um, he, we're not identical to him in this respect. And that's how... Um, that's how we have to see his experience. We shouldn't look at his experience and think, well, if I experience same-sex attraction, Jesus must have also, because he's tempted in all ways like we. Always like he doesn't mean the same thing because we're not exactly who he, who he is as the God-man. But for us to be saved by the second Adam, legitimately by someone who's fully man, he had to identify. Um, and so he is subjected to temptation, but there's no way for his 
divine nature to allow for him to actually succumb to it, uh, which is the only way we could be saved. There's no way to make another person and have them do any different that we could identify with. If God made a, sec- a second animal was fully human, they, we wouldn't identify with that flesh because we they couldn't be born of us. Uh, but the way God preserved Jesus, born of a woman, um, who is in our, our line of, uh, in, in the same line as, as Adam, um, that has to be from Adam. So that's how Jesus takes on that flesh. Not a completely different person who doesn't come from Adam, who then would represent us. They can't represent us because there's no, there's no connection. We have to have them, the second Adam somehow come from Adam. And the only way that can happen is for divinity to do that and protect against sinful flesh so that he can then walk in the same road. In experience, and it's the weakened flesh that Jesus has compared to what Adam had uh, because he can die. Um, Adam couldn't until after he sinned. These are mysterious details, I realize, but I think they're important to note because you'll hear from time to time Jesus is brought into every kind of sin every whatever that he understands this like that way. He does understand, but not in the same way we might think. Not because I understand what it's like to overeat, because he did it because I've done it. That's not what that's not the experience Jesus had with any of these, of these kind of uh, sin or temptation issues. The first statement, we affirm the impeccability of Christ. Impeccability is just that term that he's not, it's not possible for him to sin. The incarnate Son of God neither sinned in thought, word, deed, or desire, nor had the possibility of sinning. Um, we, and, and Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, which the paper refers to, says this, we ascribe to Christ not only natural, but also moral integrity or moral perfection that is sinlessness. This means not merely that Christ could avoid sinning and did avoid, actually avoid it, but also that it was impossible for him to sin because of the essential bond between the human and divine natures. Now, I'll say that there are a few theologians who, who argue against this idea of impeccability. Um, so it's not to say that every theologian agrees, but I think that the argument in favor of it is very powerful and strong. Um, I say that because I don't want you to think that what I'm des- some of the things I describe are just, you know, uh, all Orthodox Christians agree with. Some things are more nuanced and, and, cha- and difficult. But basically what we're saying by the impeccability of Christ, he was like Adam in that he had a real body and a real soul. However, his body, flesh, uh, was untainted by sin, unlike ours. Um, now, he took on Adam's weakened state insofar as he could die, but not insofar as he could sin. Because of the bond between human and divine, the human was kept from the possibility of sin. So there's no way for the second Adam, uh, for a second Adam, as I mentioned earlier, who is not divine, to accomplish anything different from the first Adam. That's the problem. So Christ had to do it. And the amazing part of the gospel is that God was willing to do it, uh, that God was willing to do this, to take on flesh so that he could save us. Um, no reason whatsoever for him to do this except for the good pleasure of his will, and ultimately for his glory. Um, but uh, th- that's the real glory of the gospel. It doesn't take away anything to say that he doesn't, uh, can't identify with every specific sin, sinful desire you've had. Um, that's not the, the, the way we need his uh, solidarity with him. The phrase continues. Look at the statement, the second uh, large sentence. Christ experienced temptation passively. So it came from the outside, if you will, upon him in the form of trials and the devil's entreaties, not actively or from within, in the form of disordered desires. So external temptations came upon him and he fended those off. He didn't experience internal temptations because his flesh wasn't sinful. So he is a perfect ethical character, that's the point. Now it doesn't mean that these temptations were not real. I like what John Walvert said about, how, um, about if these are real temptations. 
Walford says, the question is, can such a person as Christ, uh, as Christ is, possessing both human and divine natures, be tempted if he is impeccable? The answer is in, in the affirmative. And again, temptation not sinful for someone like, for Christ. The question is simply, is it possible to attempt the impossible? To this, all would agree. It is possible for a rowboat to attack a battleship, even though it is conceivably impossible for the rowboat to conquer the battleship. The idea that temptability implies susceptibility is unsound. Um, while temptation may be real, there may be an infinite power to resist that temptation, and if this power is infinite, the person is impeccable. Um, the battleship is impeccable to the robo. The robo can attack, but it can't do any damage. Um, I mean, unless it had like a bazooka on it, but you know what I'm saying, a rowboat. All right. Um, Shedd, the theologian in his dogmatic theologi uh, theology, wrote, Christ's inability to sin does not make his temptations less genuine. The army that cannot be conquered can still be attacked. Similar analogy he's making. Now the next phrase, Christ had only the suffering part of temptation where we also have the sinning part. And that phrasing comes from John Owen as the report says. And Owen said, so that though in one effect of temptations, namely trials and disquietness, remember when Jesus was tried by the devil or when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was going over, so he dealt with the pressure of what was upon him. Um, we are made like, made like to Christ and so, are, and, and so are to rejoice as far as by any means that it is produced. Yet by another we are made unlike to him, which in our being, our being being defiled and entangled and are therefore to seek by all means to avoid them. We should not be in the place to, you know, when, when um, Jesus is in Gethsemane and there's this wrestling, at least in the way that he's describing it, about going to the cross, there's not any real, um, like we would think and we experience, I could go one way or I could go the other. No, what weighed him down was he was going to go this way and the heaviness of that way that he was going to go. He wasn't sitting there thinking, I don't think I should go. If it's not your will, Lord, if it's your will, let the, bread, let the cup pass, but your will be done. So he's just describing in perfect ethical soundness that he'll do whatever God's will is, and that's a heavy thing that he's wrestling with. Likewise, when the devil comes to him and for, you know, he's fasting, he's, he's reduced physically to as low as one can be, and that would be when we would be our weakest, and the devil comes to him, and he's able, because of his perfect ethical status, to say no to this and respond with the word. But he's wore down over the attack itself. He's felt the weight of it. It's, so it's a real temptation, but it's not possible that he would ultimately succumb to it. That's what we mean by the impeccability of Christ. It's just not a good, it's not good form, biblically or even practically, to talk about Jesus in those terms with folks. Uh, you know, and when someone says, well, he, he understands this particular sin that I desire. Um, no, he, he has sympathy for us, and he's provided himself for us to pay for all that and then help, but that doesn't mean Jesus himself experienced the same disordered desires that we have. And that's the point of this larger topic of impeccability and getting this right. Um, it's true that Christ did not experience the temptations arising in the sin nature. On the other hand, he was tried as no other was tried, like with the devil. Um, added to the nature of the temptation itself was the greater sensitivity of Christ. So when these things came upon someone who was morally pure, it would be even heavier for them uh, to deal with that coming upon them, at least externally. 
Um, his body, being without sin, was far more sensitive to hunger and abuse than that of other men. Um, yet, in full experience of these longings, Christ was completely in control of himself in that respect. Continuing on in the, phrase, in the statement, Christ had no inward disposition or inclination unto the least evil, even uh, being perfect in all graces, in all their operations at all times. John Owen, again, who's referred to several times throughout, um, throughout uh, he wrote several expositions, John Owen, the Puritan, uh, and, and he's definitely worth studying. His work, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, is an absolute classic on what Jesus' death accomplished, and it really feeds into this topic. But here, this is a quote from his exposition of the he on Hebrews. This way of stating the matter comes from Owen. Christ was also like unto us in temptations, but herein also some difference may be observed between him and us. For the most of our temptations arise from within us, from our own unbelief and lusts. But from these things, he was absolutely free. Think about how many of the things that you deal with. We think of them as external, but the only reason why they're actual temptations to us is because of what's internal. That's what makes us nervous. And we're wise to, to avoid them. As I mentioned, you know, one of the mechanisms, just don't go into a situation that you know you'd be sinfully tempted. Um, further, Owen says, for as he had no inward dispositions or inclination unto the least evil, being perfect in all graces and all operations at all times, so when the prince of this world came unto him, he had no part in him, nothing to close, uh, to close with his suggestions or to entertain his terrors. The next phrase says in this, the second big paragraph, nevertheless Christ endured from without a real soul-wrenching, uh, real soul-wrenching temptations which qualified him to be our sympathetic high priest. He did experience enough of the pressure of temptation to appreciate the dilemma that we have. Um, in Hebrews 2, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's a good translation because it's not doesn't mean that he was tempted identically in every possible way like we were, but he was tempted and he knows what temptation is. And he's God, so he can extrapolate what that feeling or experience would be in some level. Um, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He knows how severe it is. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows how bad you or how strong your desire is. He sympathizes with that. He can help you with that. Um, he's already given himself to you, so there's no further judgment, if you will. It's that Christ does relate. You, 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 we can't get in any situation where we think that we're experiencing pain that God does not understand. He does understand. It doesn't mean he experienced the same way, but he understands it. And he, he, uh, he, he uh, in this way, is able to help us in this. Um, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect does not mean every specific kind of sin. It just means the dynamics of what sin, uh, temptation does and sin does, he, he gathers this, he understands this. That's the description that we have in Hebrews. Uh, true sympathy doesn't absolutely require that we've gone through the exact specific experience. Um, we can imagine another person's suffering or struggle. Um, so Christ's human experience gave him enough insight to truly sympathize with us. It says in the statement, Christ assumed a human nature that was susceptible to suffering and death. Um, that's what we're talking about. That's different than Adam's nature, a uh, pre-fall nature in, in a sense. Um, and Bavink, Herman Bavink, made this point in arguing that although Christ's human, human nature was not fallen, he did assume a weak human nature that in some respects differed from Adam's before the fall. This is from Bavink's Reformed Dogmatics that's referred to in the report. The impeccability of Christ does not mitigate against genuine struggle in the life of Christ. 
um, further. For although real temptation could not come to Jesus from within, but only from without, be nevertheless possessed of a human nature which dreaded suffering and death. Um, didn't look forward to, the, for, to dying uh, because of uh, the reality of what that, that entailed. Further, thus throughout his life, he was tempted in all sorts of ways by Satan, his enemies, and even his disciples. I referred a few times to his being tempted by the devil. And you remember that the purpose of his being tempted by the devil was as the second Adam to undergo a temptation from Satan just like the first Adam did, or similar enough. So the first Adam fell. But when Jesus stood before Satan's temptations, Jesus stood, thus authenticating, if you will, himself as the second Adam that we could trust in and that could pay our penalty. Um, he, confirms that he, he confirms that he is the worthy second Adam, the last man, as it were, the man of heaven. Um, and that's what he proves in with, with, withstanding temptation. Um, that's one that we know. But what about the example when Jesus is describing for the disciples that he had to go and die? He's talking to his disciples. It doesn't just come from Satan. Listen to this account in Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now, we all know he has to do this for our salvation. But Peter says, takes him aside. Peter took him aside. You can almost say, you, you got to quit talking like this. Uh, he began to rebuke Jesus. Peter rebuked Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord. You're not going to die. We're not going to let you die. You can't die. You're not going to do this. So Jesus hears this message that opposes the will of God for him. And so you could call that, that's a temptation. That's come, now, it doesn't come from within, but now it's being said, you should not go to the cross. You can't go to the cross. I won't let you go to the cross. And Jesus' response, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So he was confronted with temptation, like we are. Uh, but the difference is he turned it off. And we're saying by his impeccability, um, being the God-man, thankfully, he could not sin in these moments because of his ethical purity. Uh, it, it says in um, the report, in those temptations he was bound fighting as he went to remain faithful. The inability uh, to sin was not a matter of coercion, but ethical in nature, and therefore had to be manifested in an ethical manner. The last statement is just a description that the Bible says about Christ that we can relate with. And this is how we should think of relating with him when we're struggling. This is the biblical way to look at it. It doesn't give all the specific definitions, but it, it's understandable. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as uh, for men hide their faces, he hides his faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Um, I'll close with a statement from John Walvoord once again, who's helpful on this topic. I found him to be uh, very helpful. He said, our temptations wax and wane as we sometimes withstand them and sometimes we succumb to them. But Christ never gave in. And as such, the experience of temptation only mounted through his life. In this, Christ is able to sympathize with us in our human experience of temptation, even though as the God-man, he was incapable of giving into these temptations. Probably there were many reasons uh, why God ordained that his incarnate son would be tempted by men, the devil, and by circumstances. One of these was to demonstrate his impeccability. All right, let's close in prayer. Lots to cover. If you have questions, um, send me an email. I might defer them to one of the elders, but uh, I'll try to answer them. 
We won't meet back next week. We'll meet the following week after our congregational meeting. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the depth of this consideration and for your words, revelation concerning it. I pray, Lord, that our appreciation for our Lord Jesus would grow um, and that we better understand what he has done for us, what he's gone through for us, and that we would draw our strength from him. In Jesus' name, amen.